Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, jumping into an AMA here. We got questions over Twitter and by email. I have audio for, I believe, most of those questions. Let's jump in. First question. Hi, Sam. I'd rather remain anonymous. My question for you pertains to being pro-vaccine and anti-restrictions, a position unmoored from any political base in this interesting timeline. I listened intently to your last on Disappointing My Audience segment, and I'm wondering if perhaps you're allowing your understandable frustration with a backwards, anti-vaccine minority to obscure your view of what these restrictions have really been like for much of America that does not have the luxury of remote work. My wife and I have been incredibly fortunate these past two years, but we have many friends that have lost careers, businesses, and family without the ability to stay home and stay safe that is increasingly classified as a virtuous position. I consider myself deeply pro-vaccine and also vehemently anti-lockdown, a position born of a career managing risk in complex systems for the aerospace and defense industries. The absolute risk that children and vaccinated individuals have faced from COVID has been well below ordinary background hazards for nearly a year now, and I believe our failure to grasp the harm we are inflicting on children, working women, and the poor risks further polarization if it is not immediately stopped. Do you feel that unrelenting mandates and restrictions from the left are justified? And what do you feel they will do to our already splintered political and class structures if allowed to persist? Thanks so much for taking my question. Okay, well, good question. I, actually, I agree with most of that, probably all of that. And um, yet the question was asked as though I was expected not to, which makes me think there's something, and I'm also looking at some of these other questions here, you know, which uh, put this concern in my mind. There's something about the way I've spoken about COVID and vaccines and misinformation that has conveyed the sense that I'm completely in favor of the most draconian measures we've taken to achieve zero COVID, right? Which, apart from in the first month or so, was never in the cards. I take all of those points. I think it's almost impossible to exaggerate the difference between good and bad luck with respect to what one was doing to earn a living, in particular, when the pandemic hit. And this interacts with the variable of class, but not entirely. I mean, there were people who were, in fact, very well off before the pandemic hit, but happened to be in industries that just could not survive anything like a lockdown. So, I mean, think of people who owned movie theater chains or restaurants, and no matter how successful, right? Unless you had a restaurant that could pivot to delivery, you know, there were some great restaurants that failed during the pandemic. And all of this was just luck, right? So I take the point that some people have been very lucky and had it very easy comparatively. In fact, some people's businesses grew during the pandemic. And of course, this differed by country, too, where there were some countries that locked down much harder and much more effectively than we did in the U.S. I think in the beginning, locking down and locking down harder than we managed to do uh, made eminent sense, right? We didn't know what we were dealing with 
and there was the possibility of achieving something like zero COVID, although our openness to immigration and travel would have always posed a problem there, right? We would have had to have closed the borders. But the, the rationale for locking down then was not so much achieving zero COVID. It was to avoid crashing our healthcare system. And it made perfect sense. And the people who were complaining about it at the time had no leg to stand on. And we spent an enormous amount of money trying to ensure that no one was too badly damaged by our efforts there. But once we began to understand the scope of the disease and how it was transmitted, and needless to say, once we got effective vaccines, yeah, then our thinking about what was sane public policy shifted and had to shift, and perhaps it should have shifted more. I think I think it's pretty clear at this point that the degree to which we closed the schools and the length of those closures turned out to be a very significant mistake. Distance learning didn't work all that well. And once we got to a position where anyone who wanted to get vaccinated could get vaccinated, then I think the rationale for closing schools and, frankly, even forcing kids to wear masks in schools, generally speaking, all of that is at minimum quite debatable. And my mind is not settled on some of these points. But many things have changed. Vaccines are ubiquitous. We have treatments for COVID now that we didn't have even a few months ago. And the latest variant, Omicron, which I think has a 98% prevalence now, appears to be far more mild, especially if you've been vaccinated. And COVID, as we know, has always been comparatively mild in kids. So as for lockdowns and even mandates, at this point I am skeptical, right? I think um, mandates are probably counterproductive across the board. My friend Peter Atia just wrote a nice article, avidly supporting vaccines and just as avidly condemning mandates. You can look that up on his website. And I think I agree with basically every point he makes. The one thing I would emphasize, though, is that his argument only makes sense in the presence of a disease that is comparatively benign. And much of my thinking in the last year or year and a half around COVID has been not so much worrying about COVID per se. Again, once we got good vaccines, things changed a lot. And now in the presence of good treatments, things have changed again. What has worried me most is that we seem completely unable to depoliticize a conversation about basic epidemiological facts. And this is terrifying if you imagine a much more lethal pandemic. Again, it's possible to imagine that as you turn the lethality dial up, everyone's politics will magically evaporate. All the conspiracy thinking will find nowhere to land. Just the sheer terror of mortality will clarify everyone's epistemology. No one will have any time for Alex Jones when they see a sufficient number of bodies stacked like cordwood in a park. But I'm not so sure. I think the fragmentation of our media ecosystem, I think what's happened on podcasts and in newsletters and in right-wing media, 
I think the ways in which Republicans in particular have tried to leverage an anti-vax hysteria. Something like this, I think, is quite possible even in the presence of much more serious disease. And if that's the case, and we were to fail to solve our problems of coordination and cooperation and basic trust of institutions and public health messaging in the presence of something 10 or 20 or 30 times more lethal, that's what I'm worried about. Right? It has been a very long time since I was personally worried about catching COVID. I haven't caught it. I still do what I can to keep myself and my family safe. Much of my thinking here is still focused on the few members of our family who have significant comorbidities and for whom even a vaccine doesn't seem like a perfect insurance policy. But if you've gotten the idea that I think we should be responding to COVID itself as though it were a terrifyingly lethal illness at this point, that's not what I've meant to convey. What I've meant to convey is my absolute astonishment and despair in the face of the fragmentation of our society, the total loss of trust in institutions. In fact, the conviction among so many otherwise smart people that we don't even need institutions, right? That's the old way. Now we're going to just run this thing by podcast and newsletter and Twitter feed. That's how we're going to deal with all the challenges we face in this century. Cybersecurity, cyberterrorism, the remaining threat of nuclear war, climate change, pandemics natural and engineered, the threat of artificial intelligence run amok, the pressures exerted on our society by wealth inequality. All we need to do is move fast and break things. We just need disruptors. We're going to run this whole thing like it's a new tech startup. That's how we're going to maintain cruising altitude into the 22nd century. That's completely insane. It feels in some sense like the teenagers have taken over the place. There's no expertise that matters. right? You can't trust the experts anymore. No, we're all going to get online and become epidemiologists and virologists and immunologists in a few short weeks by doing a lot of Google searching and YouTube. <laughs> Douglas Murray told me recently that um, he saw a tweet where um, someone said on Twitter, oh, look, all the people who knew everything about COVID last week now know everything about Afghanistan. <laughs> I mean, that is the spirit of the time. And it's not good for us. The truth is, I have at no point in this pandemic had a strong opinion about COVID or public health measures, right? I have just had a strong opinion that it makes no sense for unqualified people to have strong opinions on these matters, and that it's dangerous when you have millions and millions of people deciding that their intuitions about a brand new pathogen and the first significant pandemic in anyone's lifetime should supersede the product of rational scientific investigation by those who are most qualified to perform it. And the difference between dispassionate scientific analysis of COVID or anything else 
and advocacy, right? There's a difference there that is very difficult to digest. And we are clearly bad at doing this. And we have to get our act together because this will not be the last pandemic. In fact, given how disruptive COVID has been, I would bet that the threat of bioterrorism has increased significantly. This is about the easiest way possible to disrupt a society. And if you're a nihilist, or you're insane, or you're a jihadist, or you're a fanatic of some other stripe, well then, bioterrorism just got its Super Bowl commercial. So, getting better at responding to a pandemic, getting better at producing vaccines, and getting people to actually take them, I consider that one of our most important tasks as a society at this point. Okay, next question. Hi Sam, my name is Andy and I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My question for you is related to mindfulness and memories. I've been finding a lot of value in your guided meditations on the Waking Up app, and since I've started practicing, I've noticed an improvement in my ability to recenter myself in times of stress, especially when confronted with embarrassing or regrettable memories. Some people suggest that memories like these resurface now and then because they aren't fully resolved. Do you think that these memories need a resolution, or is mindfulness the best way to manage them? Thanks, Sam. Thank you for the question, Andy. I don't have much of a psychodynamic interest in mulling over the past. It's not to say that's not ever useful. There's certainly patterns you can discover, and making that discovery can equip you to live differently, right? If you see you keep getting into the same situations and suffering the same kinds of collisions with other people or circumstances, there may be something to resolve conceptually about all that. But um, generally speaking, the fact that a painful memory or an embarrassing one surfaces and that it is painful or embarrassing in the present, that doesn't really suggest to me that there's something unresolved about that. It's just a more general symptom of this feeling of being a self. Right? That's what's unresolved for everyone until you can resolve it. Right? I mean, it just feels lousy to feel identified with this fictional center of gravity, especially in the midst of unpleasant thoughts about one's past or future. Right? So the interesting question is how is it? that in the present moment, a memory of something that happened even quite long ago can arise in the totally evanescent way that any memory does, and yet carry with it a fair tonnage of misery. Right? How does it impose its weight on you in this moment? Not why does it, right? That's the sort of resolution you're asking about, but how does it? What is the mechanism? How is it possible for something as gossamer as a thought to make you miserable in this moment? Well, the discovery to be made here is that it is something that you're doing, 
right? There's a contraction. There's a failure to recognize thought as thought that is the proximate cause of the present suffering. And for that, mindfulness really is the antidote, right? A clear scene of the mechanics here. And the freedom to be felt is the freedom of just watching this otherwise lethal thought just pass you by, right? And realize that you, as the conscious witness in this moment, are truly unimplicated. The past truly resolves itself when you can stand free of it in the present. Again, there may be other things that are useful to do conceptually. Reframing your thoughts about the past can also help in many ways. You can view some past trauma or embarrassment as the very thing that gave you certain skills or feelings of compassion in the present. You might be able to draw a direct line from something terrible that happened a decade ago to your ability to help specific people in your life with similar challenges in the present. So there's, there's a reframing that is available to us much of the time that can be very powerful. But from my point of view, there is no real antidote to the most basic mental suffering that is better than insight into the illusoriness of the self around which all of our suffering appears to be constellated. Anyway, hope that helps, Andy. Hi, Sam. My name is Isabel, and I live in New York. My question for you is, how can you work through a consequential lie by a close and trusted person in your life? How can you forgive and trust again? Can you share your own experience on how you've dealt with lying by someone you care about? Thank you, Sam. Hey, Isabel. Thanks for the question. Well, this goes to the topic of forgiveness, which uh, is more general than the, the issue of lying. And there, it's, for me, the crucial variable in whether or not you can forgive somebody, whether or not a, an apology is acceptable, is if you can see how this person has changed. If you can see how they view their past action, which you find reprehensible, in, in this case a lie, in the same way that you do, right? They, which is to say they disavow it, right? And they assure you that it won't happen again. To take your question generically, I mean, assuming we're talking about a, a significant betrayal of trust, the question for you is, well, can I ever trust this person again? And that depends, at least in part, on their view of what they did, right? Do they regret lying to you? Or do they have some defensive story about why it was necessary? So those are the kinds of details that matter, right? I think to forgive someone, we need to feel that there's a plausible path that stretches from who they used to be when they intentionally injured us to who they purport to be now, right? Someone who can be forgiven and brought back into the fold. But um, it's also important to acknowledge that it is often hard for people to change, right? And you ha if you have someone who's quite habituated to lying, that's hard to completely reform, unless the person has had some real ethical breakthrough. 
So sometimes when you catch someone lying, you understand something about who they're likely to be in the future. And uh, forgiveness or apologies aside, it might not be appropriate to trust them all that much going forward, depending on how ingrained this tendency is. So there are many variables that are hopeless to quantify and, and really must be judged intuitively. Anyway, I hope that helps. Thanks for the question. Hi, Sam. My name is Tim, and I live in Ontario, Canada. My question for you is regarding your plans to promote effective altruism by awarding NFTs to certain individuals who donate sufficiently large amounts to certain charitable organizations. I think it's a great idea, but I'm just wondering if you would consider expanding the scope to include people who may or may not have a lot of money to give, or who simply give their time and efforts in a way that also achieves effective altruism and equals or exceeds any good that a monetary donation to a charitable organization might do. Should such people not also be eligible to receive the recognition that these NFTs endow? Thanks very much, Sam. Thanks for the question, Tim. Uh, this gives me a chance to clarify something that apparently was not clear, although if you get into the fine print on the giving what we can pledge, it becomes clear. It's not about the amount of money that anyone would give. It's the percentage of earnings, right? So it doesn't matter how much money you make. You could be making $30,000 a year. If you're giving a minimum of 10% of what you make, you can take that pledge. Of course, there's this added consideration that um, many people might realize that the best way they can contribute to the most urgent causes is to simply make a lot of money in some unobjectionable way and give a lot of money each year to those causes, right, rather than volunteer somewhere or spend their time in some way that's explicitly philanthropic. And this is what Will McCaskill and the other effective altruists call earning to give. And that's what Sam Bankman-Fried is up to over there at FTX. And of course, 10% is just the minimum. Many effective altruists give much more than that. And some people pledge to give everything above a certain amount. They decide what they want every year to live on and then give 100% beyond that number. And again, that number can be whatever you want it to be, right? I mean, it's, I'm, not, I'm not advocating that people live abstemious lives and give everything else to charity. I mean, that's, that's amazing if you want to live that way, but I really don't have a negative conception of wealth here, right? I, I, I don't think that, I mean, you take someone like Sam Bankman-Fried, right, who's making billions of dollars and will be giving billions of dollars to the most urgent causes. In my mind, it really doesn't matter how much money he spends on himself, right? Because anything he spends on himself really is just a rounding error on the amount of money he will ultimately be giving away, right? The difference between him living in a studio apartment and him having a 30,000 square foot house in one of the most expensive cities on earth would be almost impossible to discern against his actual wealth. Obviously, he's an outlier, but something like that applies to the rest of us. I, I do think that if we're going to solve our problems collectively, it's not going to be a matter of convincing 
the most affluent people and societies to make significant sacrifices. I think we need to improve technology. We need to increasingly produce what we produce in a carbon-neutral way. And then we need to prioritize helping people and safeguarding the future. And I really do think we can massively change how we allocate resources without stigmatizing wealth. And part of this has to do with creating virtuous cycles that leverage people's desire for better things. This has happened with electric cars, right? Elon Musk started building electric cars that did not represent a sacrifice for anyone, right? He made electric cars some of the most desirable cars ever built. I mean, you have to spend something like $2 million on a combustion engine car to have a car that is faster than the current version of the Model S. So if you want a fast car, it's completely rational to want an electric one at this point. And I think that's the path forward on many other fronts, in particular with the problem of climate change. I think we can get there by focusing on the things we want, right? I mean, for climate change, and now I'm rambling, for climate change, we don't even have to talk about climate change. We can just talk about the virtues of having clean air. You just look at the consequences of particulate pollution and how much nicer it is to live in a city that doesn't have any. That solves for climate change. And there you're just talking about people not dying from emphysema and cardiac arrest and everything else that bad air creates. Literally millions of people, globally speaking, die every year because we use dirty fuel that puts particulates into the air. So rather than guilt trip people over risks that seem merely hypothetical to most of them, why not focus on how much nicer our world could be if we weren't breathing bad air everywhere? Anyway, there's just a few thoughts, but the short answer is, at any level of giving, if you're going to give a minimum of 10% of your pre-tax earnings to some of the most effective charities, that is not to your alma mater or to the local symphony or anything else you might want to support, that's all good too, but separate, you can take the giving what we can pledge and the waking up pledge will be structured along those lines. Hey Sam, this is Clint from Monument, Colorado. My question is this, what are your views on transgender women in sports? If you were asked to advise policy on this issue, what would you recommend? Or philosophically, how would you approach this complex and sensitive topic? Well, thank you, Clint, for asking the question that gets everyone <laughs> canceled. It is the very essence of a fringe issue, but I do have a few thoughts about it. First, it strikes me that there's a spectrum of concerns here. This is not one issue, right? This is a very different situation when you're talking about a, a sport like mixed martial arts, or you're talking about a sport where the advantages of having lived as a man and, most importantly, gone through puberty as a man are uh, so glaring. So I don't, I don't know what the proper counterpoint to MMA would be. Maybe a sport like ping pong. I don't know. I mean, even there, there are probably male advantages. Have the male and female world champions in table tennis ever played one another? 
that would probably give us some indication of what's going on there. There are just so many sports and even games like billiards, where spatial sense and hand-eye coordination are not distributed equally across the sexes. But it strikes me as a very different problem in a combat sport, and it's trivially easy to resolve that. It's just unacceptable to have trans women competing against women at the UFC. And then there are all the places on the spectrum in between. So you have a sport like swimming or track and field, where there seems to be no question that there are biological advantages that men have and former men will have. This is also true of weightlifting, obviously. Yeah, I think it's problematic even there, but much less so than when you're talking about a contact sport like MMA. I think it would strike most of us as ridiculous if all of the women's records in sports like track and field and swimming and weightlifting were soon held by trans women. And I think we would all understand the outrage of female athletes at the apogee of those sports not being able to get on the medal stand because a generation of trans athletes who've enjoyed all of the biological advantages of being men up until very recently are now dominating the sport. It's almost analogous to a kind of doping problem. You have effectively athletes who have been taking performance-enhancing drugs, albeit naturally occurring, and they have an advantage that can't be generally compensated for. And I guess that intuition is born of the fact that there's a difference between biological women and trans women, right? Trans women are not women in precisely the way that biological women are women. And I know that that statement is totally anathema in the current climate. But for a wide variety of reasons, it is quite obviously true. It's true from a healthcare perspective. Trans women are not going to get endometriosis or ovarian cancer because they don't have uteruses or ovaries. And uh, they simply do, in the general case, have fairly significant biological advantages in a wide variety of sports. That's why we have different divisions between men and women in the first place. So it's totally conceivable that you might see only trans women on the medal platform at the Olympics in certain events. Uh, and this is one of those examples where trans rights and women's rights are colliding. And it's worth noticing that in all these areas where it matters, we're not seeing the reverse trend. We're not seeing trans men i.e. people who used to be women, seek to compete in male divisions where the difference between men and women really matters, right? You're not going to see a trans man try to fight in the UFC as a man. And you're probably not going to see it for track and field or in any other sport where the, the strength differences between men and women are relevant. So that's weird, but it doesn't really resolve the matter because if we have to say that trans women are women and we only care about who can run fastest or jump highest or lift the most weight in a specific athletic event, well, then it seems you just have to keep the door open to anyone 
who shows up claiming to be a woman. So it's understandable, but I also do think it is ridiculous and totally unacceptable in the case of something like MMA. I think there's no principle of human freedom, political or otherwise, that requires that there always be a way for any given individual to compete at the highest levels of sport. Of course, we could create a trans division for various sports, but that would be to deny the claim being made by trans women that they are in fact women and trans men that they are in fact men. Although again, I'm not aware of ever seeing trans men trying to compete as men. Someone correct me if I'm wrong there, but I think there are obvious reasons why that's not a major story. But presumably there wouldn't be enough people to compete in those divisions and perhaps not enough interest uh, to watch those competitions. So it just may be an unhappy case where you can't compete in a certain sport if you're a trans woman, right? There's just no division for you. There's not enough trans women to warrant a division, and putting trans women in to compete with biological women makes a mockery of the sport or proves totally unethical. That just may be where we are. Okay, let's see how much trouble that got me in. Next question. Hi, Sam. My name is Alex, and I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. My question for you is this. How do we combat disinformation among the general public and our friends and family? Our friends and family aren't stupid, but they get caught up in the disinformation machine. For instance, they can quote any number of figures from the articles that they read that purport to show that COVID is overblown or that the vaccines are actually worse than the virus. But this issue isn't simply isolated to COVID. It extends to many things, economics, history, or science. Figures that they cite seem to sound intelligent upon first glance, but are glaringly wrong upon basic questioning. A pseudo-intellectualism runs deep in these articles. Dazzling BS is an apt term. The paradox I see is this. Both of us, myself and my opposing family members, see ourselves as the one with all the facts. But this obviously can't be true. How do we break down this barrier when both sides seem to be arguing from a position of truth when the facts are so clearly one-sided? Thanks. Well, this really is the $64 trillion question. I think it's not too much to say that the fate of civilization rests on our figuring out how to solve this sort of problem. Because what we're witnessing now is a near total loss of shared reality on very important topics. I mean, the kinds of topics that people are willing to go all in for politically and socially. Honestly, I have no answer to this question. I have not figured it out for this podcast. I have not figured it out for my private interactions with people. The one point I find myself making a fair amount, or the one line of inquiry I I tend to follow, is to notice that the person one is arguing with, in most of these cases, is alleging extraordinary competence and conniving and a sociopathic willingness to sacrifice the lives of others on a scale that is so widespread that it should strike them as implausible. Right? I mean, that's, that's often working in the background here. 
Also, they're often alleging a coordination of incentives that seems ridiculous on its face. The best example of this, in my experience, is something like the 9-11 truth conspiracy theory, right? When you get into the details of what it took to coordinate that atrocity and the motivations of the hundreds and thousands of people that would have, would have had to have collaborated there, and the fact that none of them ever felt guilty enough about it to confess to a journalist, or none of them bragged about it to those who don't sympathize, leading them to alert journalists or non-complicit authorities. Human beings just don't coordinate to do secret evil in this way. But for someone who believes hook, line, and sinker, all of the crazy claims that have been made about 9-11, well then, you really can't hope to make much headway. And, obviously, there are many other topics that have received similar treatment, right? COVID being one. Again, there's often an explicit allegation about incentives, right? The pharmaceutical executives want to get rich off the vaccines. Why weren't they motivated to get just as rich off the treatments? It's being complained that we have prioritized vaccination over treatment. Well, it's a lot of money to be made in treatments. Why haven't they gotten rich off the testing? Why are tests still so unavailable? There were billions to be made in a testing regime, and we couldn't quite accomplish that. Why are all these doctors and pharmaceutical executives getting vaccinated themselves if they know the vaccines are more dangerous than COVID? There's not a realistic picture of human psychology and the game theory of incentives working in the background here. But again, making those points in an argument with someone who's all in for ivermectin, I can't offer you much hope there. But good question. It really is the question at this moment in history. Hi, Sam. My name is Sally, and I live in Canada. You've spoken about how we shouldn't demonize billionaires simply for having made an enormous sum of money. You've offered J.K. Rowling as an example of someone who became a billionaire by giving the world something positive, and that does make sense to me. But every time I hear you bring this up, I wonder if it would be possible to become that wealthy without the undeniable negative impacts of unchecked capitalism. To me, it's not having that much money that's wrong. It's that in order to amass it, you need to rely on low-wage labor and rampant consumerism, which is supporting the climate crisis. I just don't see how we can have billionaires without suffering, and I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, so um, obviously I'm not an economist, so there may be um, a few fine points here that um, I'm unaware of, but generally speaking, it seems obvious to me that as wealth increases, the problem we face politically is how to spread it around sufficiently so that all boats, or most boats, most of the time, rise with the same tide. I mean, we already know that there's a way to produce sufficient energy for our civilization in a way that doesn't add to the carbon burden in the atmosphere. And this is one point on which my mind has changed completely in recent years. It's clear at this point that nuclear energy needs to be part of this equation. Whether we could do it entirely with solar and wind and advanced battery technology, ultimately, I don't know. But it seems pretty clear that in the near term, 
nuclear needs to be part of the story. And it also seems like we can do that safely. So the problem of climate change doesn't pose a real impasse for us. And demographically speaking, it's not looking like we're headed toward an Earth that is bursting at the seams with people. Rather, as societies get wealthier, the birth rate falls precipitously. And in fact, in the absence of advanced robots, many societies need to start worrying about the problem of underpopulation. But you just have to imagine what human society could look like in the presence of the most advanced possible technology. Right? Just imagine AI that really works. Full general intelligence. Imagine robots so advanced that they can do everything people can do so that you could have a plumber or an electrician come to your house who is a robot. Well, we're certainly very far away from that, but in principle, there's no reason to think that isn't possible. And if it's possible, it will be achieved if we just continue to make progress. So in The Limit, we're imagining technology canceling the need for much, even most, of human labor. Then what does society look like? Clearly, we need a different ethical and political conception of how a person finds their place in the world. It can't be a matter of finding something to do that others will pay you for so that you can survive. Then we have to begin thinking in terms of something like universal basic income. You shouldn't have to secure your place in the world through labor anymore. And in the presence of that kind of advanced technology, we really are talking about a pie of wealth that is growing bigger and bigger. And so even a comparatively tiny slice of that pie will leave a person much better off in absolute terms than even the richest people are today. Obviously, there are many ways in which we could fail to achieve such a civilization. But in success, a person born 50 years from now will enjoy the fruits of innovations and insights and luxuries and life-saving technologies that no billionaire has access to today. I mean, there were billionaires prior to 2007. None of them had access to an iPhone or anything like an iPhone. Maybe that's not perfectly true. Maybe there was some prototype somewhere I'm not aware of. But roll it back to 1999, and the richest person on earth could not have had anything like a smartphone. Now, unless you're truly mired in poverty, certainly in the developed world, you almost certainly have a smartphone. And that change was accomplished in less than 15 years. Imagine we make steady progress for 50 years. What does healthcare look like 50 years from now? Half of what we do today will seem totally barbaric, right? I mean, just imagine a comprehensive cure for cancer arriving at some point in the future. How are all of our desperate machinations, you know, radiation and chemotherapy, going to look from that vantage point? And this is just true across the board. So I don't think there's any physical principle that requires that things not get better and better and cheaper and cheaper for us 
for a very long time. And thus far, capitalism has been the best engine for that kind of innovation in terms of inspiring people to actually do the work to innovate. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. But as I've said on many previous episodes of this podcast, there are many market failures that should worry us. There are so called negative externalities of capitalism that are unacceptable, right? And we should incentivize the things we want to see more of and disincentivize the things we want to see less of with appropriate regulation and tax incentives, etc. So, yes, we want to transition to clean fuels. So, we should not be incentivized in the fossil fuel industry. We might want to tax carbon and waste production in general rather than taxing income to the degree that we do. There's a lot we might change here to change human behavior. I don't mean to sound utopian or unrealistic, but working in the background here is a general acceptance of the view that David Deutsch put forward in his book, The Beginning of Infinity, and on this podcast, which is that we're only at the beginning of discovering how powerful knowledge is. Right? On David's account, with sufficient knowledge, you should be able to go to some empty region of space, sweep up stray hydrogen atoms, fuse them into heavier elements, use those elements to build the smallest possible machines capable of building all other machines, including themselves, and then build creatures vastly more intelligent than we are, atom by atom. Right? All that's lacking is the knowledge about how to do that. Right? There's no physical principle that would prevent us from doing that. Now, that's an amazing vision of what we could do if we got our shit together. And I highly doubt that there's some principle of physics that would tell us that it's impossible for nine billion of us to live in something like a utopia here on Earth. The primary impediments to our doing that have to be political and intellectual. And these are problems we should be able to solve. Thanks for the question. Hi, Sam. My name is Richard, and I live in Washington, D.C. My question for you is, how do you guard yourself against implicit biases when it comes to topics that you have strong opinions about, especially when you come across conflicting data? In other words, what do you do when you notice yourself feeling biased in a certain direction? Thanks. Hey, Richard. Thanks for the question. Um, well, I'm sure it's true to say of me that much of the time, even most of the time, I just ride along with my bias, right? I mean, I'm not disposed to rethink this particular point for whatever reason. One is continually triaging time and attention, right? Is it really worth reconsidering this thing that I'm pretty sure is true today? But when things matter or when it's a topic of actual controversy, if it's for some reason more salient than a kind of background fact that I'm not disposed to reconsider. I do a few things. I mean, the, the, the one thing I do, which is really, it's one thing I, I don't do to a degree that may be unusual. I don't tend to care about the source of the information, leaving aside the fact that I do make the ordinary concessions to authority, at least as a heuristic. So I get my information about physics from physicists. I get my information about human health from 
doctors of various sorts. I go to biologists to learn about biology and chemists to learn about chemistry, etc. But that aside, I'm open to evidence and arguments and good ideas from sources that are either unconventional or that I actually don't like. I mean, there are people who have had nothing but unpleasant encounters with who will make a point that I think is important or that may actually even alter my view of things. And I will accept it even though I might think the evidence or insight in this case is coming from a lousy person. So I'm, I'm not especially biased with respect to the source of information. I don't personalize the source. There are things sources can do to disqualify them as sources. You can get a crazy doctor on a podcast who seems crazy to me uh, or seems to be arguing based on some psychological rather than epistemological imperative, and that will cause me to discount what he says about COVID vaccines, say. But generally speaking, I'm willing to overlook the source and deal with the arguments or the evidence independently, right? So there are things that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, said in his notorious manifesto that were totally reasonable, right? And it doesn't matter that the Unabomber said them. And so it is with anyone who I might repudiate for other reasons in other contexts. So that's one safeguard against rank bias. And ultimately, it is just a matter of jiggering the probabilities one has around various beliefs and opinions. There are very few things we're absolutely certain about. We're tending to place a long series of bets. I mean, what, what is probable? What seems worth considering in how one moves through the world? And beyond that, I'm just generally alert to some of the more common reasoning errors, confirmation bias being among the most prevalent And how often is it that you ask yourself how you would know if a given belief were false? You don't learn that by paying attention only to confirming instances of it. You have to, in some way, look for the conditions that would falsify it. And I'm sure I don't do as much of that as I might, but it's a dynamic I'm certainly alert to. Thanks for the question. Hi, Sam. My name is Shabana Kaladi and I live in Detroit, Michigan. My question for you is, does mindfulness slash meditation truly help cope when it comes to a crippling tragedy, such as the death of a child or parent? I imagine the pain would be too visceral in these instances. Well, Shabana, I can answer this on two levels, the intellectual slash doctrinal level or um, on the basis of my personal experience, which only extends so far. I think the latter is more important. Let's get the former out of the way. Yes, from the point of view of the teachings and from the point of view of the logic of the practice, the answer is certainly yes. Yes, there's, there's nothing special about any specific source of grief in this case, right? It would be exploiting the same mechanisms that one comes to transcend through practice. Granted, the death of a child 
would be especially harrowing, but it wouldn't be making you miserable by some process that is different from ordinary grieving, right? You'd be thinking about the child, you'd be thinking about how he or she was deprived of a full life, of all the experiences you won't get to have with him or her. A thought will still be the mechanism by which your misery is doled out to you moment by moment and hour by hour. And if you can truly break the spell of identification with thought, if only for moments at a time, well then mindfulness could be expected to provide relief insofar as you succeed at that. And while I haven't had to test my practice against that kind of suffering, I've certainly had to test it against many painful experiences. And um, all I can say is that I found mindfulness to be a real antidote to psychological suffering. And more important, it's not mindfulness per se, it is that which can be realized about the nature of mind through mindfulness, right? An insight into selflessness slash emptiness. It's an ability to locate the quality of consciousness that isn't changed by grief, right? That in you which is aware of sadness is no different from that in you which is aware of joy, right? And to fall back into that condition again and again is a source of freedom. Of course, that is not to say that one could expect to be unaffected by the death of one's child, or that even one would hope to be unaffected. My practice of meditation doesn't have as its goal to be indifferent to the lives of my children, and I remain agnostic as to what a truly normative state of enlightenment would look like if one's child died. I would not expect the eyes of a Buddha to be dry under those conditions. And granted, I could be wrong about that, but it just remains to be seen. But as to whether or not insights into selflessness can provide real relief in the midst of significant suffering and can actually interrupt the mechanics of suffering, that I can attest to and that I would expect to be true whatever happens in my life. And I think I will leave it there. Thank you for the questions, everybody. And I'll see you back here soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>